so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the verdict, that the light came into the world, but people preferred darkness to light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light, so that his works might not be exposed. But whoever lives the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be clearly seen as done in God. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and our minds this evening. Help us to know, to hear, to follow the voice of the Good Shepherd who calls out for us, Jesus, whom the Father has sent. Holy Spirit, I ask that you reveal to everyone here present, to all the world, the Savior who has come for us, who wills all to be saved. May you stir their hearts so that they may follow him and know the blessed joy that comes from living in his kingdom. And I ask this in Jesus' name for the Father's glory. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So tonight, um, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. It's a little bit of a speed up instead of like going through the various individual parts of the story that lead up to Jesus. Um, but it's the one that helps us kind of put together the unraveling that happened from last week, creation and corruption. He's the one that reconciles the world to the Father and renews all things in himself. So as we follow the great story, we're going to encounter the person of Jesus, the one who restores us, right relationship brings justice back um, if you haven't got a handout there's some on the back counter I don't know if anyone picked them up go ahead and go grab them now if you have not got one yet So we're going to begin here on that first page. You see this great graphic that used to be posted all throughout our school. Um, you know, maybe some of you have encountered Catholics and have thought, wow, they don't know their scripture before, or they're really only concerned about uh, the rules or whatever stereotype there exists. So there was a movement within the last 10, 15 years, to Catholics to rediscover the kerygma. So our school had this posted all up, um, and it's the basic proclamation of the gospel. So um, our students would know, and as we walk through these doors tonight, as we leave, we want to know God loves you. Sin divides us from him. Jesus saves us. 
And then ultimately we have a response to play. Well, we need to go through our connecting points that bring us from last week to this week. So there in numeral one for our connecting points, we heard God subsists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are nonetheless one substance. Chad discussed this, even highlighted how they're all present. Even in the first chapter of Genesis, we can see this. It's revealed to us that the Father is the maker of heaven and earth. The Son is the Word of God who became man and he was sent by the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is Lord and giver of life. We're going to flip the page. Top there, page two. Remember, we discussed the Christian faith is defined by two mysteries. It is these that make Christianity what it is. So that is of the Trinity, the Trinity of one God who subsists in three persons. You know, we share a faith background with the Muslims as well as the Jews. But that numeral II or two there underneath that letter B is what sets us apart. For the Jews, it was folly that there is more than three persons in the one God. You know, they recognize God as Father, but it, for many of them, until they had come to encounter Jesus, they thought it was blasphemous that there would be three persons in God. And then for the Muslims, who also kind of share this understanding of God as Father, they think it's blasphemous that God would even defile himself to be joined to human flesh. How could this all-powerful God become one of us? So it truly is these two defining factors that set us apart from any other faith or religion in the world. And it's especially the person, Jesus Christ, who makes it true. As you come to know him, as we go throughout this course, because maybe you're here and you're like, I just know about this Jesus. I've heard about him. I don't know much about him yet. I claim him as Lord. I've come to know that he is God. And I want to share his life with you. And he himself has said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when he comes and he reveals the fullness of faith to us, we should consider whether he's Lord, he's a crazy person, or he's a liar. As C.S. Lewis put it, that's our three options when we encounter the person of Jesus. Either he is who he says he is, either he's a crazy man and doesn't know what he's talking about, and then he could be a liar. And then this man, Jesus Christ, reconciled humanity to the Father because of sin, and all of his life was salvific or redemptive for humanity. From the beginning, when he was just a babe, all the way to his death and resurrection, and then continuing on in his ascension and reigning in heaven. Letter C there on top of page two. From the fall of man, which we encountered in Genesis 3, God was calling out and preparing a way for reconciliation and a return to him. It has been written in the cosmos, which we can come to know by reason, and then have been told by his witnesses. So much of the story that's going to progress on from here concerns those witnesses, those people who have encountered God and have spoken to the world about him. 
But then also we can know by the world around us that there is a God and then come to know more about him. And to kind of begin to investigate that question, on your tables, there's a packet there that has a few envelopes in it. So if you want to take out the first envelope that's marked number one, it goes through kind of the layers of a story. And I apologize if it's a little small print, but at your table, go ahead and you're going to want to shuffle them up just a bit, like flip them all over so you can't see the writing, shuffle them up and then flip them back over again. And then see if you can uh, define out kind of the arc of a classical hero's story. The time lapse that was given in class is condensed here for your listening enjoyment. All right, looks like, oh, you guys still need a minute or two? Okay, so um, let's look if you remember which one was number one. So this outlines kind of the mythical arc of the hero's journey. Um, if anyone's a fan of Jordan Peterson, he's been kind of a person that has rediscovered or repopularized the hero's journey. Um, but generally, stories were told all throughout history um, in this way. It makes the great story. So I don't know if anyone remembers reading the Odyssey in um, English literature class in high school. But I didn't know if anyone was getting tripped up on like the reward versus the road back and the resurrection return with the elixir. Like if you remember Odysseus, he gets home and then what's he have to do? He have to fights off all of the um, suitors to, I forget his wife's name. Um, but uh, you can see how like there's that final journey. So uh, number one's order goes the ordinary world. We meet our hero. Our call to adventure, the refusal of the call, meeting the mentor, crossing the first threshold, tests, allies, and enemies, approach the inmost cave, an ordeal. That's the hero's biggest test yet. And then there's a reward. They see the light at the end of the tunnel. There's a road back to where they need to come. We aren't safe yet. There's a resurrection. It's like breaking through the throes of death, the final hurdle is reached, and then the hero heads home with the elixir, rides home triumphant. So you can kind of see that outlined in Top Gun Maverick. Um, do you see, like if you look at the steps uh, here, and I'm gonna flip forward just so you have that. Okay, uh, that one begins with Maverick after his career as a fire pilot in the US Navy, has begun a career as a test pilot, then he's facing his test program for the Dark Star being shut down, save the program. He tests the plane that should say going Mach 10. Um, he breaks it, but then he destroys the prototype in the process. He's unwilling to change or be obedient, and he's facing the end of his career. Um, then he's saved by his old friend Iceman, who reminds him of his mission, and greatest gifts, and send him to teach a Top Gun. And then he devises a plan, employing the F-18 Super Hornets, and then yada, 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 to lead this group of individuals to go and destroy the Iranian nuclear enrichment plant. Then, you know, there's the montage of the time of their training, their friends being formed, there's tests, there's allies, 
Uh, and then the inmost cave is when they actually go um, and he has to face his darkest moment, which is not actually the trip. It's coming to grips with Goose's death and then his son's uh, roosters and their relationship. Uh, then there's the ordeal. They ultimately go and destroy the plant, but then um, Maverick uh, sacrifices his plane to save him. And uh, you're like, oh my gosh, he died. There's the reward, seizing a sword. Rooster goes after Maverick, um, but he's injected and he finds out he's alive and goes and rescues him. Um, then there's the road back. You know, they rendezvous, they steal the F-14s, and then uh, they destroy two other planes. But then um, ultimately they need Hangman to come and lift them to that final throws. And so then they come back and they're all happy uh, together. So you can see just how this story even matches. And it's one of my arguments, I think that maybe would be lacking in Top Gun. I didn't see the same like story arc. You just had like one progressive linear plot and like it ended with this, which I mean, maybe you could say that when Goose dies, but uh, I want to just explore one other quick one and then we'll get back to it just so you can kind of get a grips. And then I'm going to say, here's why um, we're talking about these movie plots tonight when we come to talking about the Kerygma. So um, if you want to uh, put number ones all the way back in the number one box or the uh, card envelope, and then if you wanted to put all the number fours back in their envelope and then pull out number two, or sorry, number three, which might look like a two. I wrote them all two. I was tired and I made them threes. A little stumped, okay. Good. Not good. Actually, so um, I am an imperfect person, and I tried to match this. Uh, the rocky one, that is an envelope, too, but we're just going to skip past that um, one because, like, hands up if you've seen the movie Rocky before. Okay, so we would have been safe. I was like, eh, maybe not everyone's seen Rocky. Um, even this movie might be a little bit outdated, but it is a classic. Um, I had to condense all these down and kind of like go from IMDB, the plot synopsis, so made it somewhat, but uh, you know, I probably could have done a better job, but it gets us to the point of what we want to talk about. So Ordinary World, Peter Parker is a smart and capable teenager. His call to adventure is when he visits Columbia University where he's bitten by a genetically engineered spider. He has this newfound strength and abilities, and he wrestles for money in the movie. He's cheated out of his earnings, and he lets the criminal go by who kills his uncle, Ben, who is his father figure. Um, Peter constantly remembers his own omission and the last words of his uncle, Ben, with great power come great responsibility. Um, and so his mentor essentially is his uncle, Ben, his living memory. Uh, then we have... His first threshold is when he adopts the persona of Spider-Man, he realizes he must use his power to fight good, fight for good. Um, this condensed part is just kind of the whole process in the plot of him, um, well, the Green Goblin, his best friend's father, injecting himself with superhero serum um, and becomes the Green Goblin. And then like the whole web of friendships there. And then... The inmost cave is when the Green Goblin actually learns who Spider-Man is, that he's Peter Parker, and then begins to attack his family. 
the closing scene ends with um, Green Goblin keeping uh, Mary Jane hostage and plotting Peter against uh, saving children against Mary Jane. He saves both. Um, then they fight to the to the death, and then Green Goblin actually had the better of the fight. Tries to trick Peter into um, giving him mercy, and then uh, Spider-Man uses his spider sense to avoid the glider, and it impales Green Goblin. And then ultimately, at the end of the movie, he comes to realize that his power has a greater responsibility, so he puts aside his crush, Mary Jane, and then takes on the role of becoming Spider-Man. But the whole reason why I wanted to begin with just highlighting these story arcs, how some of the greatest movies that we can think of follow this hero's journey, and why from antiquity to now, great stories have been told this way. Because I think it's, in a way, the author of the universe calling out to us to say, come hear this great story. Come hear of my salvation. So if you return to your outline, um, here's how I'd want to just frame that. So I'm not saying every story that we hear in antiquity leads us to God or even just that they lead us um, closer to faith. But it is, in a way, the human person and our grasping with our humanity, our own reason, to make sense of what God has woven into the fabric of the universe. And so we all know sometimes we don't have the clearest thought, the clearest action. So we might discern one thing and then be far from the truth, or we might get closer and as you, if you are a student of uh, philosophy and then world history, like civilization, especially in the Greeks, they started getting closer and closer to the idea that there is one God against all the other pantheisms and the, all the other pagan systems. Like people generally through reason were moving that way. Ultimately, because of our fallenness, God had to become one of us to truly reveal himself. And that's where we encounter Jesus. But there on the middle of page two, um, just to back this up with scripture, St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, for what can be known about God is evident to them, talking about the peoples, because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. For all they, they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man, or of birds, or of four-legged animals or snakes. So if you remember, before we started activity, I said, through reason, through looking out in the world around us, we can come to know something about God. But then also, God has interacted. He has intervened. He has encountered man. So Acts 1.8 says, Jesus to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So by both ways, we come to encounter the living God. And through specifically the witnesses, they have a message to share. So at the bottom there of that page on two, you have this Greek word, the kerygma, which means proclamation. In letter A, as the apostles began the work of preaching and proclaiming Christ, they proclaimed a message that was directed at individuals, but at the same time, it talked about a reality that was not just individualistic. It was communal. It was cosmological. I have a message, a good for you, for you personally, but then also this is far beyond you. God's calling all of creation back to himself. And the general outline, just kind of as we just saw with these movie plots, goes as such with Roman numeral I. The age of fulfillment has dawned. The later days foretold by the prophets, we'll hear about in the coming weeks, is here. This has taken place through the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By virtue of the resurrection, Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God as messianic head of the new Israel. So just if you remember, Chad, we're looking for that promised one, the offspring of the woman, this king. This is what this message contains. The person that we're looking for is here. And then in Roman numeral four, the Holy Spirit in the church is the sign of Christ's present power and glory. So the story continues. It didn't just end with Jesus. He poured out the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit continues the acts of Jesus in the world. The messianic age will reach its consummation in the return of Jesus when he comes again in glory, his second coming. And then throughout all of sacred scripture, and especially in the Acts of the Apostles, there's finally an appeal to the audience for repentance, which it, with the offer of forgiveness the Holy Spirit, and then of salvation. So the kerygma is both a personal proclamation for each one of us to hear, but then also it's universal in its scope and its application to all peoples. So it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for this individual. It's for all of mankind to be called back to the Father. So what's at the heart of the message? Following there in number three. The first proclamation of the Kerygma is traditionally identified with Peter's speech at Pentecost in the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. But the message actually didn't originate at that moment. Jesus had entrusted him with the message. He had spent three years with his master. And Jesus is the first one to author it. He's the word that speaks. He's the word of the Father. And this is the message. His first public words of ministry in the Gospel of Mark are this. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So I want to pause 
and just maybe ask it rhetorically. Maybe we'll just get some ideas. The word repent maybe is a word that isn't used a lot today. But if we were to go down to Walmart or South Point, I was living in Emporia, Kansas. Our biggest shopping place was Walmart. So whenever I wanted to gather the masses, I'd say, let's go down to Walmart. You know, we're going to find people of all walks and be able to do the whole family feud survey says. So maybe South Point for us. Okay. South Point or Gateway. Gather the masses in. Husker game. If we were to go and ask 100 people what the word repent means, what kind of responses would we get? Think about it from ask for forgiveness. Make it up to somebody. Yeah, so generally, those are both right. Um, Generally today, when we hear the word repent, often there's maybe a little finger pointing or it's said in... uh, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it from a parent. Better repent, change your ways. You done screwed up. But when Jesus comes and issues this word repent, he's not finger pointing the crowds. He's not saying you done screwed up. Wrath's coming, so you better change your ways. What he literally says is you're going that way. Come follow me this way. What you've been waiting for is coming to its fulfillment. There's no finger wagging. There's no pointing. There's no judgment. What it is, it's an invitation, as you see in letter B there, to do an about face or 180. It also brings into a person's being a complete change of mindset. So there is a stark leaving from going this way to a reorganizing one's life around the kingdom of God and following after Jesus. And Jesus sent out others with that same message, who he came to know, who he came to call the apostles. So in letter C there, it's down there at the bottom of page 3 from the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, Jesus summoned the 12 apostles and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey but a walking stick. No food, no sack, no money in their belts. They were, however, to wear sandals, but not a second tunic. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave from there. Whatever place does not welcome you or listen to you, leave there and shake the dust off your feet in testimony against them. So they went off and preached repentance. Maybe flip back because I'm going to ask you, but you should be able, if you have uh, this ringing in your ears, what message did the apostles preach? You want to remember? You can turn the page back if you don't. They preach repentance. So the same invitation that Jesus begins with in his first public words of ministry, just a moment, Olivia, um, he sends them out with that same message. So they go out and say, hey, the kingdom of God is here. We've met this Jesus. Come follow after him. The question posed was, what are we to make of Jesus' directions to shake the dust off of the feet of the apostles 
and witness against these towns. Doesn't that contradict his love and mercy? Um, so two folds of this, like there's the reality that we all have personal choice and free will. Um, and so let's even just consider pause. So Jesus sends them out with what? Do they have lots of clothes? They have lots of money. They have lots of food. Okay. So he sends them out with this message to be proclaimed. And in that, if they go to a town and they don't want to be, the town does not want to receive them, are they going to be well-fed? Are they going to be clean? No. Are they going to be hungry? Yeah. So in the proclamation of the gospel, there's a call to reciprocity, a receiving of the message. So it implies that the gospel cannot be imposed, but proposed. So in the sense, God respects our free choice, just as we heard even in our opening prayer. So that all may have eternal life. Doesn't mean all choose eternal life. We even hear St. John write that. There were those who preferred the darkness and they did not come towards the light. So when we hear Jesus say, shake the dust off your feet, it's because God, in his love, grants us free will, free choice. And he ultimately allows us to come to the realization of either, yes, Lord, you are Lord, and I want to follow, or no, I want to be the God of my own life, and I choose that. And so we just see this like kind of carried out in the beginning of the gospel. And when they get sent out, it means that we do have personal choice, which is that last part of the kerygma. Now, in the long term of this, you know, like they're receiving the message for the first time. There's going to be follow up. So are we saying that, you know, these people are condemned? But no, but we draw from that the truth that there is a reciprocity for us. When we receive the gospel, we have to provide for the means of it. So it actually like weaves into Christian life this thing that's greater than just like, oh, I believe intellectually. It means that we have to form a way of life that comes through Christianity, which is why we've called this class the way. Living or um, discovering and living the Catholic faith um, because it's a way of life. Help answer. Um, but I also wanted to just kind of highlight that, like, to begin for us to think that the call, the gospel, isn't just merely about this intellectual ascent of ours. It's an intellectual ascent, maybe a soul-capturing event that actually should change our life. It changes the way that we live. It forms us into a new community where we are all providing for the gospel. So then if you flip onto page four there at the top, um, the commissioning of this message, its final proclamation, reaches its fulfillment at the ascension, and then it also continues. So we're not going to read all of Luke 23, verses 44 to 49, but you can just see there 
Jesus says, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. It's everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. And then he reminds them of the events, what had happened, the message they are to proclaim, and then where they are to begin. And then he reminds them, you are to be my witnesses of these things. And he promises this dynamite, this dynamos, that's going to go forward with them, that's going to make the message supernaturally effective. This promise of the Father, and then they are going to be clothed on high. And then in Matthew's account of the ascension, he gives them more explicit instructions. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So this proclamation follows there at the bottom of page four. It begins with the call of Jesus, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Then he's sends out others in that call echoes it's a universal mission so go to the ends of the world just as if you follow the lives of the apostles they literally did saint thomas tradition holds he went to india but it actually looks he extended out into china to the far end of the pacific ocean saint james went all the way to the atlantic ocean in reached the coasts of Spain. So they go out to the ends of the world. And the continent call, repent, organize your life around Christ. Be baptized, be associated with Christ's death and resurrection. Learn what he taught. And then finally, the call is not imposed, but proposed. So on the top of page five there, we come to the promise of the Father. Because if you think, if you kind of remember, maybe look it up in Acts of the Apostles, chapters 1 and 2, you could go back and read tonight. Jesus, before in Luke, and uh, he said, stay there until you're clothed with the power on high. But then he also instructs them, go, go out to the ends of the world. So they know that they have this mission, but then they're supposed to stay. But if you read in Acts of the Apostles too, the doors are locked, like they're kind of fearful. So the one thing that they're supposed to be doing, they're maybe like hesitant to do yet. They don't have that power on high. Then the day of Pentecost comes. They receive the Holy Spirit. I think we even mentioned that in Genesis 1, the difference between wind and spirit, how they're the same word in Hebrew. So this rushing wind happens, flames Tongues of fire come to rest on the apostles' head. They receive the Holy Spirit, and then they go out and proclaim. That's what's captured in um, the second chapter of Acts. But it creates a new life for the world. So the grace of the Holy Spirit there on top of page 5 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which if you've never heard that before, um, we're probably going to reference it, CCC, and then that little squiggly thing just tells you what paragraph it's come. It's the teaching body of the church. Um, so it's the official position or official teaching of um, the Catholic Church. Uh, I should have brought out my copy of it. It's a big, thick book. But um, 
it tells us everything from uh, three, the four pillars. So it talks about um, faith, talks about uh, Jesus, talks about the sacraments, and then it talks about prayer. Father Ramonetti, I butchered the first two, but I mean, generally, it talks about like generally the creedal statements of our faith. Then it talks about Christology. Then it talks about sacraments, how we receive the grace, and then about lives of prayer. Right? Yep. Okay. Um, I've blanked on the official, but you get a sense of like the scope of what it covers. So the first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So when we encounter the kerygma, there should be a wrestling with our fallenness to realize and looking at oneself, I'm not the person I should be. I'm broken. I'm incomplete in myself. And that's not on our own. We have a part to play with it, but it's a grace of the Holy Spirit, God who's calling us back to himself, that even begins that movement for us, as we saw. The first work is that of conversion to have our eyes open, to have the coals kindled in our heart, and to be turned towards God. And then we're renewed. We start to move toward this God who has loved us and called us to himself. And let her be there. After receiving the promise of the Father and being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter issues the first kerygma and is recounted in the second chapter of Acts, verses 14 to 42. And he covers the same steps that we occurred. Um, just for the sake of time, we're not going to go through it. Um, but he talks about this age of fulfillment. He recounts the prophet Joel. And he, he prophesies, he recounts these words of prophecy, of us being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he appeals to the crowd that the person who has affected this, has brought this about, is this Jesus Christ. And then by the virtue of the resurrection, Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God as Messianic head of the new Israel. And then he finally ends with his proclamation, repent and be baptized, each one of you. And 3,000 peoples were added that day. And the church grew. The church was birthed. And so it had immediately power. We hear elsewhere in Scripture, the men and the women and the children who heard were cut to the heart. And they asked the apostles, what are we to do? And they respond, be baptized. We're going to kind of talk about baptism in two weeks from now when we encounter the person of Noah. But this physical way, this physical ritual in which one symbolically and actually goes into the water to die with Christ and is brought out and raised with him.
So they go through and they're actually associated with Christ's death and resurrection in a sacramental way, which is life-giving, new life-giving. So this message was originally proclaimed in the second chapter of Acts. It was just to a Jewish audience. But then, if we know, it's a message for all peoples. So St. Irenaeus wrote, we heard, I think, something of him last week there at the bottom of page five in letter six or number six, a message for all. For though languages differ throughout the world, the contents of the tradition is one and the same. The church established in Germany have no other faith or tradition, nor do those of the Iberians, nor those of the Celts, nor those of the East of Egypt, of Libya, nor of those established at the center of the world. The church's message is true and solid, in which one in the same way of salvation appears throughout all the world. Peter was speaking to fellow Jews because Jesus said, you will first be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. And it's the same shared message, just as we heard St. Irenaeus say. There was unity in Germany, in Spain, Libya, in India. Those who heard the message, it was one and the same. And Paul's a master at this, so in case you didn't know, that's St. Paul. He's a master at fitting this message to the Gentiles. And one of the most masterful things that he does is just kind of like, a great storyteller, he puts this message in a way that they're going to understand it. So he visits Athens, you know, the great city of Athens, cap one of the capitals of Greece, their city-states, and it's known for its learnedness, its worldliness. It's the greatest city in Greece. And he goes there, and he's in the city, and he sees their way of life, and he says this in their big common space. You Athenians, I see that in every respect you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your shrines, I even discovered an altar inscribed to an unknown God. What therefore you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord, the heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands because he needs anything. Rather, it is he who gives life to everyone and breathes and breath and everything. He made from one the whole human race to dwell on the entire surface of the earth, and he fixed the ordered seasons and the boundaries of their regions so that people might seek God, even perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since therefore we are the offspring of God, we ought to not think that the divinity is like an image fashioned from gold, silver, or stone by human art and imagination. God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent, because he established a day on which he will judge the world with justice through a man he has appointed. 
and he has proved confirmation for all by raising him from the dead. So Paul puts it in their frame of understanding. He even appeals to their sensibilities, quoting their own poets, their own literature, and then leads them ultimately encounter this person, Jesus. Consider your former ways and come follow after him. So throughout the rest of this week, or sorry, pause the rest of this year, we want to be making a case for Jesus. All the team that you'll encounter here, we want to be making a case for Jesus and then not just Jesus, but the church that he established. But that's probably too much for this class right now. And you're maybe still discerning. I don't know what this Catholic church is. Because I'd like to, down the road, point back to um, a few scripture passages where we encounter this message of repentance and how it's woven into even the what we point to in the establishment of the church. But for tonight, just for you to consider, what Christians that have followed after Jesus, and hopefully many of them are Catholics that have brought you to this point, have brought you to a message that has caused you to pause and say, what's going on here? I, have, I encountered something new just as Justin was walking along with the man that we heard a few weeks ago. And who is this man? Who is this Jesus who I'm hearing about or have heard about? And what does this message to follow after him mean? Because there at the bottom of the page, you can see ultimately when we receive this person of Jesus, it should change our lives. And we have a part to play. So from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the fidelity of the baptized is a primordial condition for the proclamation of the gospel and for the church's mission in the world. In order that the mission, message of salvation can show the power of its truth and radiance before man, it must be authenticated by the witnesses of the life of Christians. The witness of a Christian life and good works done in supernatural spirit have great power to draw men to the faith and to God. So hopefully you've encountered this reality. As well as I ask you, pray for all of us who will be teaching that you can encounter that too in us, that we may be faithful to our Lord Jesus to bring you to knowledge of him. So I end. Um, this is our parish theme for the year. Zeal for your house will consume me. Um, we walk through our church virtually. So we've chosen this because we want zeal for this project, but not even just this project. Zeal for God's home where he comes to dwell with us to be that which consumes our entire life. So our principal, a few weeks ago, we were doing teacher faith formation and teacher faculty meetings. And he posted this picture up here and he asked like kind of the teachers, what does this scripture mean to you? Or what does this mission mean to you? And so we kind of went around the room and I was just getting ready to present. And I didn't say at the time because I knew I'd have an opportunity to speak about it. But what this scripture means 
to me is I've lived outside of the Father's house, and I know what that feels like. And then Jesus saved me and rescued me and brought me back into the Father's house. So I was raised a cradle Catholic, um, baptized in Seward. And I would say that I lived a pretty faithful life growing up. I guess when I've come to know as an adult, like when we were younger, maybe when we weren't every week Catholics, we were there 50 to 75% of the time. There'd be a few weeks that we would miss Mass. But generally, our family was faithful. Um, My parents taught CCD, which is like religious education, Bible school. Uh, I altar served beginning like in third grade. And uh, at one point in my life, I even thought, hey, maybe I want to become a priest. And uh, at that point, as a young child, I was like, I love God. This is great. And many people would have thought I would go on to live very holy and pious life after that. Seward, if you don't know about it, it's um, a very strong Lutheran town and uh, a pretty small Catholic, I mean, I think strong Catholic grouping, but it's kind of a minority, or at least it felt like it for me going through Seward High School um, and Seward Middle School. So, but it is very Christian of a place. So like me and my friends, we'd have great talks about faith in general, Christian faith in general. But then when it came to Catholic things, they would begin to say like, oh yeah, you weird Catholics. And then when I would talk about maybe becoming a priest, um, they'd be like, you're crazy, who would do that? Um, And I began to feel these like pressures from the outside, from my peers. And I was young and dumb and didn't know to talk to anyone. But the only way that I could reconcile in my head what to do with these questions, these doubts, was to move further and further away from God. I also have a very scientific mind. And so I began to, you know, encounter like new atheist arguments. And so going from being faithful and everyone thought, oh yeah, he alter serves a lot. He's going to become a priest. To my junior year in high school, when I considered myself an atheist, and St. Paul writes in his first letter of St. Timothy, I'm grateful to him who has strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he considered me trustworthy in appointing me to, a, to the ministry. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and an arrogant man, but I have been mercifully treated because I acted out of ignorance in my unbelief. Indeed, the grace of our Lord has been abundant, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of these, I am the foremost. But for the reason, but for that reason, I was mercifully treated, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display all his patience as an example for those who would come to believe in him for everlasting life. To the King of ages, incorruptible, invisible, the only God, honor and glory forever and ever. There's a lot of reasons why I look to St. Paul and see my hero, because I understand deeply the words that he was talking about. Because from the time I was a junior, I didn't go out and persecute and kill Christians like St. Paul, but I definitely wasn't the friendliest to my friends who were still Christian. 
I was ignorant in my unbelief and I was godless. And it was a very dark time in my life. And there was no dramatic conversion moment. It was through the witness of my wife, who I didn't even know at that time, but then came to know, and through our friends who were Catholic, that the vibrancy of their life drew me back to the faith that I had been raised into. Made my confession, and then it was just like a slow drip of God's mercy and love on my heart. It wasn't until I met my spiritual father, Father Farrar, when he actually said, like, Blake, time for you to start taking this thing serious. You've got to develop a prayer life. And he challenged me. He challenged me to start reading more that my faith actually even began to flourish to where it has brought me to this moment to be here in front of you today. So I just leave you with this scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me because I'm here because I lived outside the Father's house. Like I said, Jesus saved me. Jesus is real, and he wants to have a relationship with you. And I pray, just as I prayed at the beginning of the class, that the Holy Spirit might pour out himself upon you so that you may come to know the Lord Jesus. And I can promise that this message is true, just as St. Paul can. And I hope to share it with you the rest of these weeks. Anyone have any questions? No, the Lord Jesus. And I can promise that this message is true, just as St. Paul can. And I hope to share it with you the rest of these weeks. Anyone have any questions? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.